0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues
2: This is Starship Sova, everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 114. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hello everyone, welcome to the Christmas Eve show of Starship Sova's Oral Delights. I hope you saw nice and fine and dandy on this Christmas Eve. So, what have we got today? Well, we have J.J. Campanella with his Science News Update for December. We have a little intro to the main story. The main story is coming from Jeff Carlson. And Jeff, as you know, nicely give a little introduction to his story. And he's done so with a first-class one this week. Then comes his little Christmas story as well. Narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We've also got the little editorial, but it's just again, it's me banging on about this month of December and the Lord Dickens Declaration. And if you notice as well, we have some artwork by Tom Bevan. Tom did the artwork, if anyone can remember, for Liz Bear's Show Guths in Bloom. So Tom, thank you so much for doing the artwork for this. Link on to Tom's website at the front of the website. So that is your Christmas show this week. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy the show. So, first up, the editorial. Can I just honestly say it Everyone that has donated to this, this month of December, where we're trying to raise a little bit of funds just for Spider and Jeannie Robinson, they're going through a bit of a crap time. And honestly, it's going great, Guns. <laughs> I am. Gobsmacked. You know, people, how much people are donating and everything like that. It's just, I'll tell you, you know, the final price, because like I say, it's going to end the end of December and then the next week, which is, will be the week, I think it's the sixth when this show comes out, sixth of January when this show comes out next time. And that's the one where actually the Sofa Notes show will be on as well. You know, like the, the winners of that. I'll actually tell you how much we've raised, you know, cause including, you know, we've got the 200 pound for the book as well. So, you know, it's, it's staggering to be quite honest. But. <laughs> But if you haven't, why not? Come on, three years I've been doing this, and if you haven't donated and you haven't done anything like that in three years, now's the time. Now is the time. Come on, let's make this fantastic. You know what I mean? Let's a nice kick off for Spider and Genie for the new year. You know what I mean? Like you so they've had this, and it's always—I know we did. You know what I mean? When kind of things were going kind of bad, and that, you always like say, right, this new year, hopefully it's going to be, be a nice new year. So I don't want to try and make Spider and Jeannie's Robinson just, you know, at the start of the new year, make it, you know, a little bit better than what it would be. And how do you do that? You <laughs> bloody well know. Come on, come over to Starship Sova. Josh has got the link there. All you do is go under the Lord Dickens Declaration, click on that, 2 99 or whatever amount you want to give, and, sign, you know, you get Larry's story in full. Then you can, as Larry says, you know, listen along to that you know, while he reads and spot if he makes any mistakes, to be quite honest, see if he, he actually does do that. But please, that's what I'm begging you for this year. You know, like I say, if you've been listening to me for three, how's it, three, four years, and you know, you've took everything off us for free, now's the time. Come on, now, you know, don't bother donating to Starships over. Do this. You know, if you don't want to donate to Starships over, fine. You know what I mean? I live with that. I live with that. But. I really think everyone should just kind of dip in their pockets and two pound ninety-nine would be fantastic. There you go, makes one special at Christmas. So we'll kick off with our first little fact article on this Christmas Eve show. It's Mr. JJ for It's the first and last. There's only one. So, Mr. JJ Campanella, sir. Greetings
3: and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this December 2009 installment of Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening's confusion, Jim Campanella. I have a whole slew of different news items this evening, from the human interest to the obscure. So, let's get on with it. I'll start off with that human interest story. It's not so much hard science, but it's kind of interesting nonetheless, and certainly a bit unusual, You may have come across this one in your local newspaper because it involves someone selling something on eBay. And no, it was not a holy relic or anyone's virginity. Uh, Back in 2005, Anna McCallum was a research assistant aboard a seagoing marine biology laboratory out of Australia. The southern surveyors' nets, the name of the ship, trawl the ocean depths down to depths of 100 to 1,000 meters, And then they dumped their catches on board for McCallum and her colleagues to sift through. Uh, They were literally doing a survey of the species, all the species that could be found in the deep waters off the southwest coast of Australia. At some point in one of the 12-hour shifts that the researchers spent combing through the species that the nets found, Anna discovered a new species of shrimp. The shrimp was about two inches long and red-spotted and apparently quite attractive as far as shrimp go. Even though the researchers had already come across many new species, the shrimp stood out for its size and beauty. By discovering the shrimp, Ms. McCallum earned the right to name it. She could have already done this several years gone by and named it after herself, as many researchers would have done, but she has held off. Anna is now a doctoral student at the University of Melbourne, and she decided a few months ago to auction off the right to name the new shrimp species to the highest bidder on eBay. Anna was not conducting the auction for her own profit, though. She hoped to accomplish a loftier goal, to raise money for marine conservation. She chose the popular website eBay to raise funds for the Australian Marine Conservation Society, AMCS, by auctioning off the right to name the new species. She said, quote, I think eBay just seemed like an easy way to manage it and make it accessible to everyone. I thought it would be a good way to make money for marine conservation and for taxonomy in general. The auction got underway at the end of March, and McCallum watched intensely. She knew that a few of her friends would put up bids, so she thought she would end up getting at least $100 for the naming rights. By the end of the auction, days later, about 20 people had joined in. Bob Rosenberry, journalist and publisher of Shrimp News International, which follows world shrimp farming, was one of the more enthusiastic bidders. He said, quote, I was attracted to the beauty of the specimen and the fact that someone could name it. Early on in the auction, I think I made a bid of about $2,000, and I was going to go up to $5,000. He planned to dub the species Lebius shrimp after his website, but then he learned he couldn't name it after a commercial entity, so he bowed out of the auction. The winner of the eBay auction with a bit of Australian, that's about $2,900 U.S., was Luke Longley, a former NBA basketball player who won three straight league championships with the amazing Chicago Bull team of the 1990s. McCallum was completely surprised that an American, quote-unquote, basketballer would be interested in naming a little deep-sea shrimp. But Longley was no stranger to supporting marine conservation, having helped halt the construction of a resort near the Ningaloo Reef, a vast coral ecosystem off the west coast of Australia. And coincidentally, Longley is not American. He is from the western Australian city of Fremantle, which is not all that far from where McCallum found the shrimp off the coast. Longley says that he was as excited to name the new shrimp species as he was to help the AMCS protect the marine environment. He named the shrimp Lebius clairhanna, as a birthday present to his eldest daughter, Claire Hannah Longley, who turned 15 this August. McCallum published a description of the new species and its name in a recent all-shrimp issue of the journal Zotaxa. The paper includes a description of another new shrimp species, Labius cristagalli, which McCallum discovered on a 2007 Southern Surveyor cruise. She says she'll likely have more new species to discover as she studies the crustaceans off the coast of West Australia for her PhD thesis. I wish her luck. I'm sure she will do a great job and find some fascinating new little critters. It's always nice to see a scientist who is not a glory hound that wants to immortalize themselves. Okay, now from the human interest to the just plain strange. I came across this story by accident in the December issue of, this is the name of the journal, Harm Reduction Journal. I have never seen this journal before, and I assume that the raison d'etre of the journal is to, what, reduce harm? The journal article is called, quote, Cannabis as a Substitute for Cannabis and Other Drugs, and was written by Dr. Amanda Ryman of the School of Social Welfare at the University of California at Berkeley. As with many people in California, Dr. Ryman seems very interested in marijuana, Despite this commonality, I found the thesis of her article to be kind of interesting. Now, now let me state here that Dr. Ryman's views do not necessarily represent those of the Starship sofa, nor any of her crew, so do not make any assumptions here. Okay, so, Dr. Ryman suggested that cannabis is the ideal drug to give those who are already addicted to several other drugs, including alcohol, to wean them off of the more quote-unquote harmful drugs onto one that is quote-unquote more healthful. Let me quote from her paper to clarify, quote, substitution can be operationalized as the conscious choice to use one drug, legal or illicit, instead of or in conjunction with another due to issues such as perceived safety, level of addiction potential, effectiveness in relieving symptoms, or access and level of acceptance. This practice of substitution can be observed among individuals using cannabis for medical purposes Basically, Ryman's study is designed to examine drug and alcohol use and the occurrence of substitution among medical cannabis patients where they use cannabis to help wean them off other substances. Mind you, before we get into this, I count this work as soft science because there was more than a bit of subjectiveness to the results, as you'll see. Ryman collected anonymous survey data at a medical cannabis dispensary in Berkeley, California. About 350 patients were examined. The sample was 68% male, 54% single, 66% white, mean age 39, 71% reported having a chronic medical condition, 52% used cannabis for a pain-related condition, and 75% used cannabis for a mental health issue. Here is a long and sad list of her findings. As I'm sure you have already guessed, she was not exactly dealing with a healthy group of people here. of the sample currently drinks alcohol. 2.6 was the average number of drinking days per week. 2.9 was the average number of drinks on a drinking occasion. One quarter currently uses tobacco. 9.5 is the average number of cigarettes smoked daily. 11% have used a non-prescribed, over-the-counter drug in the past 30 days with cocaine, MDMA, and Vicodin reported most frequently. 25% reported growing up in an abusive or addictive household. 16% reported previous alcohol and or drug treatment. And 2% are currently in a 12-step or other recovery program. 40% have used cannabis as a substitute for alcohol. 26% as a substitute for illicit drugs. And 66% as a substitute for prescription drugs. The most common reasons given for substituting these drugs were, 1. Less adverse side effects, 65%, 2. Better symptom management, 57%, and 3. Less withdrawal potential, 34% with cannabis. Ryman concludes that since medical cannabis patients have already been engaging in substitution by using cannabis as an alternative to alcohol, prescription, and illicit drugs for years, it is probably a great idea for doctors and professionals to themselves substitute one psychoactive substance for another with the goal of quote-unquote harm reduction. Ha! I knew that she would get the name of the journal in there somewhere. Anyway, am I just being cynical, or does this research seem just silly and discountable? I mean, seriously, isn't she saying the same thing as someone who says they did a marketing study and people say they prefer Pepsi to Coke or vice versa? Isn't she just saying here that in a marketing survey, drug users prefer cannabis to Coke? I almost feel like investigating whether she has financial ties to the medical marijuana industry. While we're on the subject of questionable psychological studies, try this one on for size. Dr. Nicholas Christakis of Harvard Medical School just published a paper this December in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. For those of you who do not recognize Christakis's name, let me jog your memories. He and Dr. James Fowler have conducted studies over the last couple of years to see how Habits and feelings move through social networks. Their earlier controversial studies suggested that obesity, smoking, and happiness are all contagious from your friends and acquaintances. This new study, led by Dr. John Cacioppo of the University of Chicago, found that loneliness is catching as well, possibly because lonely people don't trust their connections and foster that mistrust in others. The study suggests that loneliness appears to be easier to catch from friends than from family, to spread more among women than men, and to be most contagious among neighbors who live within a mile of each other. The results indicate that lonely people tend to move to the peripheries of social networks, but first, lonely people transmit their feelings of isolation to their friends and neighbors. The study also found that loneliness can spread to three degrees of separation— Just as in studies of obesity, smoking, and happiness show that. So, one lonely friend makes you 40 to 65% more likely to be lonely, but a lonely friend of a friend increases your chances of loneliness by 14 to 36%. A friend of a friend of a friend adds between 6 and 26% to your likelihood of being lonely, the study suggests. Okay, this last one strikes me as utterly absurd. From a practical standpoint, Do you even know what the psychological state of a friend of a friend of yours is? Do you even think that there is a 14% chance that a remote friend's status affects you? How about a friend of a friend of a friend? Even that remote 6% chance strikes me as a sheer statistical coincidence. And now using Occam's razor, isn't it more likely that effects like this can be accounted for by common environmental influences or the tendency of similar people to befriend each other? That is, lonely people in this case. Just to show you how weak the evidence is for these particular conclusions by Christakis' group, Dr. Jason Fletcher recently responded with his own study to show that, listen, acne, headaches, and height also appear to spread through computer networks. Since these things cannot be spread physically, it suggests other explanations are at work here, which makes sense in these cases. But people will be quicker to believe the psychological examples like loneliness and happiness. Okay, just to make me feel better, let's finish the night off with a couple of hard science stories. So the next story has to do with ants, but only secondarily. So it's barely an ant story, okay? It's actually a story about caterpillars. For the last several months, we've been discussing ant communication, and most of the communication that we talked about was based on chemical signals of some kind. But we did mention that ants employ sound as well, sometimes to the detriment of the ants themselves. Maculana butterflies parasitize ants, and some maculana species treat their hosts as a larder, raiding and consuming the ants' brood, while other butterfly species mimic ant larvae to trick the workers into feeding them, just like cuckoos. The question of scientists has always been, why do the ants put up with this and not attack the caterpillars in their nests? Well, in this month's issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology, Dr. Cartzen Schoenroge from the Center for Ecology and Hydrology in the UK and his colleagues answer what protects the caterpillars. They found that maculina caterpillars make a sound like an ant queen, and the ants behave like her courtiers, even though she isn't there. According to Dr. Schoenroge, the caterpillars are such convincing mimics that they're able to trick ants into believing that they are larva so that worker ants rescue the caterpillars before they even rescue their own young when under attack. Analyzing the recordings, the team could see that the main difference between worker and queen ants' buzzes was in their pitch. Workers have a high-pitched buzz of about 1,400 hertz, while the queens buzz at about 800 hertz, and butterfly pupae all buzz at about 800 The pupae were mimicking the queens to raise their status in the worker ants' eyes and ensure that they get fed first, or that they can feed on the ants for that matter, depending on the caterpillar species. Schoenroga says that what he finds most surprising is that the ants and caterpillars are able to produce such similar buzzes, giving their differences in size and the instruments that they use. The final story of the night is kind of complicated, so try to keep up with me. It has to do with cancer and genes, and was reported by Dr. Tyler Jacks and his MIT research team in the November issue of the Journal of Genes and Development. First, some basic genetics. Your genome is made up of half DNA from your mother and half from your father. Yes, that seems simple, but bear with me. Many genetic diseases arise when you get a bad or recessive gene from your mother and another bad gene from your father. If you have two copies of these recessive or bad genes and not a good one to balance it off, then you will get the disease. If you get a good gene from one parent and a bad recessive gene from the other, then you are balanced and do not get the disease. This is called a heterozygous state. All of us are heterozygous for dozens of potentially lethal genes. For many years, geneticists who specialize in cancer research have believed that one possible mutation that can lead to cancer is what is called a, quote, loss of heterozygosity, unquote. It was thought that if you're a heterozygote and your one good gene is knocked out in a cell and becomes a mutant, well, then that could seriously hurt the cell. If you're dealing with a gene like a cancer suppressor gene that protects you against tumor development, then cancer will often be the result of a loss of heterozygosity. Loss of heterozygosity is a real phenomenon, and it's been observed over and over again. But it turns out that if you have a good working copy of a gene, you can actually be worse off than if you don't have one. I mean, there are times when nothing is actually better than a half measure, as in a heterozygote. So Dr. Tyler Jacks and his team found that the loss of one copy of a regulatory gene called DICER1 is enough to turn tumors deadly while losing both copies can actually stop the cancer from growing. I mean, the finding is a surprise, because normally cells have to lose both copies of a tumor suppressor gene before cancer can start. One working copy is usually enough to protect the cells. Jack's results suggest that many other genes that have not been characterized and are working at half capacity may actually accelerate tumor growth. Dicer is a protein that helps literally slice long pieces of the genetic material RNA into small bits known as microRNAs. Despite their small size, these microRNAs are now known to play a big role in controlling lots of cell functions, including regulating when and where proteins are made, and recently microRNAs have even been implicated in several types of cancer. Mice predisposed to lung cancer got more tumors when the researchers removed one copy of the Dicer gene from their lung cells, Surprisingly, mice lacking both copies of the genes in their lungs actually did better than mice with a single copy of the gene. The same results were true for mice with another type of cancer called soft tissue sarcoma. Mice entirely lacking Dicer 1 survived better than mice with one working copy of the gene. Dr. Jack says, quote, Dicer may be an example of an unusual type of tumor suppressor, one in which losing only one copy of a gene can promote tumor growth. We are calling this a haploinsufficient tumor suppressor, unquote. Presumably, what Jax means is that two copies of the gene protect cells from cancer, but incapacitating one copy of a gene is enough to support tumor growth. Personally, I'm not thrilled with Jack's term. It implies that a single copy of the gene should protect against cancer. And isn't that exactly the opposite of what his data shows? The term is just confusing. Anyway, as I said, many other genes most not involved with microRNA processing may also lead to more aggressive tumors when one copy is knocked out. Searches for cancer genes usually look for genes that follow the classical model, that is, requiring both the copies to be lost to induce cancer. Jack says that searches for those cancer genes should be refined to take into account genes like DICER1 that promote cancer when only one single copy is lost. Even if researchers find other such genes, these genes may not follow DICER's pattern when both copies are lost. That's because microRNAs are so crucial to the cell's functioning that losing DICER1 or other parts of the manufacturing machinery could be disastrous for both healthy cells and tumor cells. Other genes may not be as crucial for cell survival as DICER1. By the way, please note that this research does not offer any immediate solutions for cancer treatment or therapy or cures. It's not likely that the researchers are going to go in soon with guns blazing and wipe out both copies of genes and tumor cells. The problem is that knocking out those genes could prove toxic to healthy cells, and the alternative of replacing a missing copy of the gene is not yet very practical. We're still working on the problem of human gene transformation. It'll be a while yet before we can inject any gene we want into a human to replace a missing gene that doesn't function correctly. That has been the goal for years with diabetics, and we're still working on that process. Well, that's all for me from now. As always, take care, stay away from sad sacks on Facebook, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
2: There you go, Jim. Jim's in the running as well for Sofa Notes Awards. Again, don't forget the Sofa Notes Awards. Come over and give a little vote. Again, on the front of the website, there is a link there Josh has kindly put on. Go over there and make your votes count. This one, you only get one vote. So, for one set, you know, one group, one category. So, please come over there and do that. So, little introduction to this short story comes from Jeff Carlson. And as you know, Jeff Carlson is... The best thriller writer going there now. One of the new kiddies on the block. Do look out for his new book, Plague Zone. It is in the shops there now and a fantastic read. You know What a, a truly nice guy Jeff is as well. So I'm going to hand you over to Jeff Carlson and then we'll run straight into Jeff's short story. Hello,
1: Internet! I'm here to talk about Jeff Carlson's A Lovely Little Christmas Fire in Asimov Science Fiction Magazine. Starship Sofa is doing their podcast with the story. I'm recording my introduction. Thought I might as well put it up on YouTube at the same time. So here we go in three, two... Welcome to Masterpiece Theater and Deep Thoughts with Jeff. I would like everybody to sit down, strap on an adult diaper, maybe take a Valium if you're feeling a little tense. We're going to be having some heavy conversations about the role of race in literature. Whew. Science fiction is traditionally just a very white you know, subset of literature. It's about white guys in space. I mean, that's back in the 50s and the 60s. This has begun to change a great deal. I am hardly the only writer who's doing this. Um, You know, again, it's the 21st century. You're seeing folks from all walks of life, you know, creeds, races, religions, you know, all there in science fiction. I think that's awesome. That's what the world is like. I live in California. When I walk down the street, when I look around at my friends, there's all kinds of people who aren't. It's not just a bunch of squeaky clean, you know, white Aryans. That's just not how the world is. If you've read my books, my other short stories, you know, I write present day tech thrillers. The present day is, that's just how it is. That's just the future is now. So I'm personally not very threatened by that. That's just like, it's just more representative of just like my life. Um, but there are some people who um, who find that um, less than attractive. So let's uh, take a step back. We'll uh, digress briefly. Um, a Lovely Little Christmas Fire is a standalone sequel to my short story, Gunfight at the Sugarloaf Pet Food and Taxidermy, that ran in um, Asimov's a couple years ago. Both of these stories feature an African-American heroine named Julie Buchanan. This is a black woman. She's presented in the stories not only as competent, um, but as being clever and sexy and a genius and full of energy and funny and wonderful and great, right? Now, I don't have some kind of axe to grind. I am not like a raving liberal pink Okami who thinks that we should all have, you know, chips in our frontal lobes to make sure that we're all politically correct all the time. For me, it was really just a plot device, uh, you know, if you've read my other stories, my books especially, one of the major themes that just interests me that I keep coming back to is isolation and difference. Sometimes it's about people trapped in a strange environment and trying to reach out. Sometimes it's about crazy little aliens, you know, down beneath the ice that'll rip your face off um, and just the, the differences between them and the isolation of their environment and, and how they relate to the rest of the universe. Uh, I'm just interested in in things that are different, trying to fit their way in. Probably goes back to my tortured childhood when I'd, when Jeffrey didn't fit in and had to find his way in. Um, and so these are the themes that, you know, this is just something that I just find really, really interesting. I was like, I was too smart as a kid. And I, you know, I had like three or four really good friends, but everybody else thought I was weird. Plus, I had like really, really curly hair and they made fun of me. Um, so anyway, I wrote these stories. And again, it's a plot device in the story. It's, I mean, it's just, it's good for like a couple paragraphs of texture. I mean, Julie talks about, you know, she jokes about how she's like the only black woman for 300 miles. The stories are set in Montana, right? And most of the people there are white. And she's from Florida. And so she's trying to fit in and, you know, learn how to talk like the locals and make friends. And she reflects on the differences between like urban Miami-Dade, you know, versus Sugarloaf, this town of 5,000 people in Montana. And the second story is set in Missoula, Montana, which is like this giant metropolis of 60,000 people, right? I mean, it's just, it's nothing. It's one of the biggest cities in Montana, though. So it's just a little bit of background and characterization and character arc. That's why I did it. Um, However, there were some people who took offense to this story. Um, because, you know, like all the local yokels were like the white guys and then there was this super genius black girl and I'm a white guy, too. So where do I get off, you know, selling out my own race and all this kind of stuff? And I guess there was some guy who was um, stalking the message boards at Asimov's dot com and raising quite a ruckus about how uh, Sheila Williams, the editor, was selling out the you know, politically correct Democrats and liberals like myself. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm a libertarian. You know, I believe in a small, fiscally responsible government who keeps their fingers off of me and mine. Don't, don't. In my business, right? I'm hardly I'm hardly a, like a bleeding heart liberal um, So anyway, the last time I saw Sheila, she was uh, relating the story of this guy and, and how she would really like to kind of tweak his nose and I I mean, I popped right up said, I said Sheila, I, I have actually a, a couple really good ideas for more Julie Buchane stories. I mean, I could, I don't know if I want to write a series of them, but again, I could easily write like a trilogy of these stories and she said, man, Jeff, that would be awesome. Please send them to me. I mean, the first story was a lot of fun. I assume they'll be you know, lots of, you know, romance and mayhem and and things blowing up in the uh, you know, you guys know how I like to blow stuff up uh, in the second story. And I was like, I'm like, gosh, darn right. I'm going to blow stuff up and, you know, there'll be some some sexy dialogue and stuff. Um, and I'm I'm working on the third the third Julie B. Chain story right now. It's it's tough to find time for short stories with my deadlines for the novels. Obviously, the, the novels are my meat and bread. So that's kind of that's all I I don't really want to talk about the story itself too much except that it's set in Montana and um, it's set in Missoula, Montana. And again, I I wreak havoc upon poor old Missoula, which is a lovely town, uh, a lovely city. I've been there um skied not like there but nearby uh passed through i have family in montana you know i used to spend my childhoods there i've been there for thanksgiving it's it's a great part of the world to live totally dig it not trying to offend anybody it was a character plot or a character device i'll uh, i'll stop talking now and you guys can enjoy the story okay wait, wait 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 i'm back i thought i was done i walked away and i had like like eight more ideas okay So if you had to live with me like my wife does, you would realize I am not the most politically correct guy, right? My favorite show in the whole world is South Park. No, Kenny! The guy who was giving Sheila Williams over at Asimov's a bad time because he thought that gunfight was some kind of, you know, big leftist conspiracy of mind-warping propaganda makes me think of the best scene in the entire Star Wars universe, right? Luke is on Dagobah in the jungle, And he's above that spooky hole, that nexus in the force. You know, you go down there and you confront your worst fears. And so Luke turns around to Yoda and he says, what's in there? And Yoda looks at him and he says, only what you take with you. I think a lot of people who are the most strident in politics, they're kind of freaking out over demons of their own creations. You know, it's nice to have things to feel important about. That's so why you have the fringe elements kind of always spinning their wheels, getting all upset and worked up about these things that a lot of the rest of us are just kind of like, you're like what, are you, what are you talking about, buddy? So, uh, you know, deep thoughts with Jeff, right? Now, on to the story. Thank you.
0: A Lovely Little Christmas Fire by Jeff Carlson Someone was smart enough to call her. Even with the Army and DHS on scene, the governor had tapped her personally. Miss Beauchamp he said on the phone. The job couldn't have been any dirtier, but that kind of compliment was better than cash, neck rubs, or beaches. So Julie grinned as she turned into the moist stink of the bugs. Watch the ceiling! She yelled. I'm more worried about the floor, Song said. Julie waved her T.I. gun as she hit the stairs, glancing back at him through the office space. The ceiling is hot. Song wasn't moving. We're three stories up, he said. If the floor lets go, you won't be so excited about making our bonus. He couldn't have stopped her any faster if he'd smacked the wide part of her jeans. Julie froze and then turned on the fourth step, exasperated, in part because he was twenty feet away. A dozen low cubicles separated them. song could be as stubborn as a rock, but the truth was they made a fine pair. Julie was aware that they both looked out of place in this well-organized call center, dragging guns and packs into the maze of desks. He was six and a half feet of Irish Cheyenne, "'a mix almost as exotic as her own African-Arabic-French ancestry, "'and lean and firm in comparison to her curves. "'It's not about the money,' she said. "'Isn't it?' "'It's about doing well.' "'Then why is your radio off?' "'We don't need help.' "'Always the superhero.' "'Watching him, Julie shifted beneath 30 pounds of sensors and other gear,' She never felt the weight when she was running, only when they stopped to rest in the late July heat, and the mischief in her heart grew as she took in Hai Song's posture, spine straight, arms folded. His protectiveness made her happy, so she flirted with him by stamping her feet up and down two stairs in a spontaneous little salsa dance. Maybe she put more hip into it than was necessary. ba boom bang Her thoughts were like a drum. I love you. "'Seem safe,' she said, lilting the words. "'If you fall through, you (laughs) wish.' Hisong's mouth twisted as he fought with a smile and won. "'His scowl deepened. "'Then he started toward her through the cubicles. "'Just be careful,' he said. "'Julie laughed. "'They haven't made a bug yet that's got more brains than—' "'Ah!' "'The stairwell exploded overhead. "'Julie fell.' In the first seconds, the avalanche was only noise, a stampede of footsteps and crashing boxes. But then she was overwhelmed by hundreds of small, shiny objects and cardboard and a leaping man. He was Caucasian, brown hair, brown beard. He wore a backpack even larger than her own. Run, he screamed. Julie tumbled into an unladylike heap on the floor. Her elbows and knees spread to catch herself. Instead, the man squashed her flat when he put his shoe on her pack. Everywhere, the small trinkets clattered down the stairs, silver balls and red balls and gold stars, and High Song shouted behind her. He might have tried to intercept the man. Julie heard someone bang against a desk, another shout, and a sharper crash. She yelled, "'What the?' Then she got a face full of bugs. The stairwell was buried in winged termites. They were slick, yellow, damp, stinking, Julie shrieked and clawed both hands across her mouth. Yuck! Blinded by the swarm, she tried to get up. Someone grabbed her shoulder. Song. No one else would have waded into the bugs for her, but he was still supporting her when he slipped, yanking her sideways. Julie bounced off the wall. Song hit the floor. She landed on him. Fortunately, the termites were dispersing. Julie spit in disgust and looked around not unhappy with her position on Hyesong's chest. There were bugs in his hair and bugs on the floor, and Julie giggled to shake off the lasting sensation of creepy little feet against her skin. But it was too hot to stay together. The office building was stifling in the summer sun, so she patted his arm affectionately and began to roll aside. Song grabbed her waist. Wait, you okay? Hey, Julie said, not fighting too hard. His free hand went to the absurd junk on the floor, distracting her as he lifted a clump of trinkets, a glittering blue and white ball, a plastic snowman, and a red-nosed toy reindeer. Julie wrinkled her eyebrows in confusion. Haisong smiled. "'Merry Christmas,' he said. Then he kissed her. What had the other man been doing in the building? This part of town was supposed to be clear— but some holdouts had stayed to fight the bugs themselves. There were also looters, thrill-seekers, and other assorted fruitcakes. The man was probably stealing as much as he could carry. He was about the twentieth unauthorized person they'd seen today. Julie rubbed a bruised elbow as she and Hi-Song worked to kill the termites. It was messy. The bugs were in the walls and file cabinets, and a translucent, squirming mass of yellow bodies burst from an easy chair in one office. The air was hazy with winged termites and dust. They had a hard time finding the nest. Julie used her thermal imaging gun to locate the worst pockets in the walls as Hisung created some breathing room with his glue sprayer. They laid down bait and pheromone beacons. As it turned out, there were already three queen colonies— Heterotermes Arius Machovsky moved fast, too fast for an 11-syllable name. Julie called them Machos for short, like Nachos, even though their creator's surname was pronounced Machovsky. Lance Machovsky. His babies were smaller than most termite species, but acted like they bled methamphetamine. The bugs had ravaged most of the building's top floor which seemed to be dedicated to management offices and storage for discontinued items. In back, endless boxes had slumped to the floor, chewed apart by the machos, leaving flecks of bright wrapping paper and cardboard and what looked like 86 billion Christmas ornaments and other holiday goodies like pint-sized Marys and Santa Clauses. Julie crunched through the debris with an alarming sense of guilt. Is this going to put us on the nice list or naughty? She called back to High Song, wincing at each crunch and pop of snowflakes, elves, and holly beneath her boots. "'You know which list you're on,' he said. They were dumber than pigs, to mix work and romance, of course. Julie's grandpa would have said, "'Never poop where you eat,' with stronger language." Julie Beauchene and William Hysong had been partners in the Department of Fish, Wildlife and Parks before they were lovers. Neither of them wanted to quit the job. Putting in for a transfer would have created another problem, most likely moving one of them too far across Montana to see each other regularly. So they had rules. Rule number one, keep your clothes on during your shift. Stop it! Julie said, laughing as she skipped away from Hisong outside the office building. But he caught her easily. The sidewalk was empty. The road was empty. Julie let Haisong take her prisoner again, and they nuzzled right there beside an abandoned car for anyone to see, no matter how filthy they were with grime and sweat. I'm glad you're all right, he said. Next building, she said. That guy could have broken your neck. And you let him go. That's right. song touched the sensitive skin behind her ear, and Julie shivered. This is business, not pleasure, she said, even as she ruined her own attempted severity with a wink. She loved to encourage his playful side. Was that the Irish in him, or the plains riding Cheyenne? And she felt especially glad for it now. The silence was worse than the bug's. Missoula, Montana was hardly a major metropolis with a population of 60,000, but it seemed larger in the preternatural quiet. As far as she could see, the downtown blocks were lifeless, resonating only with the sound of distant helicopters. She smelled smoke and gasoline. Let's move, she said. We're behind schedule. Yes, sir. That earned him a whack and another approving kiss. The truth was that Julie wore the pants in their relationship, at least... She liked to think so. song was hardly a cliché TV tanto, yet he seemed content to follow her lead, in part because her head was just louder than his. Most of their gadgets were Julie's inventions. Their notoriety was also because of her tech skills. Two days ago, every public servant in Montana had been called into duty at all levels, city, state, and federal. But few fish, wildlife, and parks rangers like themselves were actually in combat. Missoula had been under DHS quarantine for 30-plus hours as the 4th Infantry and units of the National Guard tried to control the infested areas. Martial law was in force across most of Big Sky Country and neighboring Idaho. Scanning... Julie said as she tried the glass doors of the next building. The ground floor was retail, a coffee shop and a women's clothing store. Both were locked. Very few people had obeyed the requests by DHS to leave their businesses and homes unsecured. No problem. Hisong took his pry bar to the coffee shop and they were in. Julie was already fairly sure the place was clean. Even sitting still, machos ran hotter than normal termites. And these bugs never sat still. Her T.I. gun had only penetrated through the windows into the front room, but if there were machos anywhere in the coffee shop, she would have picked up movement or trails outside where the bugs were squeezing through the slightest gaps around the windows, doors, or vents. That was how they'd tagged the office building next door. H. Arius Machovsky was voracious. Even with more than enough dry wood or paper to sustain a colony, the machos always sent scouts to expand their foraging area. Julie and Hisong swept the back rooms of the coffee shop, then moved to the clothing store. Minutes later, they broke into the first of eight apartments on the floors above. It was hot work. Their grid consisted of two full city blocks, which they were expected to clear before sundown, so the pace was relentless. Sweep each room. Leave bait if suspicious. Chart their maps. Keep moving. You can't buy a workout like this, Julie gasped at the top of three flights of stairs. She hoped Hysong would smile and say, You don't need the exercise, babe. The big lunk just nodded and said, No kidding. Julie laughed. He gave her a quizzical look. Yet, as much as she liked to argue, there wasn't time. She would bring it up again in the shower, though. He could be sure of that. You're some date, Hysong, she said what are you talking about? I love you, she thought, but she was careful with those words, hoarding them to herself. It was better to joke. That was how their relationship had begun, light and easy, and for the most part Julie was okay if it stayed that way. Except she was crazy for him. Who was she protecting? Scanning, she said as she approached the next building. Inside, they refilled their canteens in a men's room sink and snacked on the sodium-laced buffalo wing chips and bland cheese sticks they found in a break room, scavenging, like the machos. Unfortunately, their packs were nearly empty of beacons and bait. Soon, they'd be forced to hoof it back to their FW and P jeep, which they'd left down the block. They emerged into the late afternoon sun with less than two-thirds of their quota done. Julie's disappointment made her mad, which seemed to heighten her senses. She felt on stage in the empty city. Maybe that was why she noticed the change in the air. There were voices around the corner of the nearest intersection. You hear that? she asked. Either we've got more cities who should have evacuated, or there's another bug team poaching our grid, and I don't want em making any kills that are ours. Let's get in their face. We could use the help. Whose side are you on? Let's just call it in, Song said but Julie marched away from him. They could have driven, but their jeep was in the other direction, and Julie wanted to surprise the other group if possible. She was still two buildings from the corner when the voices turned to screams. Look out! A man yelled as Julie broke into a run, the T.I. gun swinging in one hand. Her pack jostled against her shoulders. Hyesung quickly passed her, and she doubled her effort, cursing under her breath, what she wouldn't give for legs that long. He beat her to the intersection. Then they froze. The five men and women in the street were unauthorized persons. That much was clear. No uniforms. No gear. It also dropped a lot of money when they panicked, breaking away from the doors of a check-cashing operation. Machos rushed from another entrance to the building, as if the two-story structure had opened its mouth and breathed. The fog was an evil yellow. Great tendrils of bugs swept over the paper bills on the street and absorbed the screaming people. Three of them made it to their pickup truck, beating madly at their hair and faces. They left a duffel bag and their friends behind in the swarm. Jimmy! A woman shrieked from the pickup. Freeze! Julie yelled. They ignored her. The engine roared and the full-size Dodge Ram lurched toward Julie and Hisong through the bugs, trying to intercept one man. The other guy had charged in the opposite direction. Neither Julie nor Hisong had any real weapons, so Julie faked it. Her thermal imaging gun looked like a Martian death ray, with its stubby barrel and a side-mounted display as round as a dinner plate. Julie pointed it at them, shoving it forward in a classic gunman's stance. Someone inside the pickup shouted. The vehicle jerked. song blasted them with his glue sprayer, hosing down the windshield and the open passenger door and the schmo they were trying to rescue. The schmo fell down, coated in a sticky gray mess full of hundreds of bugs, at the same time, the pickup swerved again, its driver blind, then submarined magnificently into the street front of a laundromat, sending glass through the sky. Alarms went off. The neon topwash sign slipped and then detonated against the truck bed. Holy crap, Song said. Julie had almost lost track of the fifth bandit, the one on the far side of the Bugs, But he flinched and looked back at the noise. She saw his brown hair and beard and recognized the extra-large pack. "'That's the same guy from the Christmas place!' Julie yelled, running toward the billowing swarm. Hisong caught her arm. "'Let him go!' he said. "'What? These people are hurt. I need help!' Julie glanced at the moaning schmo in the street and the dazed bandits inside the truck. None of them had fled in the same direction as the fifth guy. Was he even with them?' Hi, Song, we can't let them get away. Something's not right about get on the radio or I'll glue you myself, he said. The state police and 4th Infantry Platoon who responded came in two patrol cars, two gun-mounted Humvees, and a half-ton army truck. Julie was taken aback. She wouldn't have expected more than the patrol cars, even if they'd captured Butch Cassidy and the Hole in the Wall gang. The arrests derailed them from their bug hunt. Julie hated to give up on her grid, but the police sergeant wanted their statements, and the platoon captain dispatched his men into the infested building. I guess that's enough fun for one day, Julie said to Song, leaning close as she watched the cuffed, bruised, and bandaged robbers led into the back of the truck. Um... Want to take a bath? Yep. No nonsense. That was what she liked about him. Lord knew she generated enough malarkey for the two of them. Is that why you haven't asked me to move in with you? She wondered, as they got into the sergeant's patrol car. One of his men would drive their FW and PG back to HQ. The outskirts of the business district looked like a war zone. Five huge fires crackled in the Walmart's parking lot. "'sending smoke over the city like winter clouds. civilian truck rigs and army vehicles jammed the streets, "'suddenly forcing Julie's escorts "'to stop and start through the traffic, "'empty trucks leaving, full trucks arriving. "'Ash ticked against the windshield "'as Julie stared out, biting her lip. "'All of the incoming rigs were swaddled "'in ungainly fat bulges of plastic. "'The soldiers unloading the trucks wore respirators, goggles, and jackets, despite the summer heat. Others patrolled the lot with glue guns and flamethrowers. They were burning Christmas trees, hundreds upon hundreds of Christmas trees. The whole scene looked like a demented, satanic fantasy. Say something funny, Julie thought, but her mind had gone blank. She loved Christmas. Growing up, the holidays were the best times in her life. When she and her mother visited her cousins in Tampa, Aunt Mom put on a convincing veneer of normality, drinking less, hugging her more, even joining in for carols and cooking and corny old movies like It's a Wonderful Life. Watching the trees ablaze was like incinerating those memories. Worse, Julie knew this was one of the smallest burns in Montana. Rumor was there were uncontrolled fires and wide swaths of forest just east of Missoula, on the Continental Divide. This hell consisted of a tiny number of trees. By the last count she'd heard, barely a thousand had been reduced to charred stumps on the Walmart's flat asphalt lot. These trees were being cut from city parks and open spaces, not only to be destroyed, but tested for termite samples. Each pyre had a white tent set beside it. Technicians in yellow protective gear strode back and forth from the incoming trees and their tents with clippers, jars, chem kits, rakes, nets, spectrometers, and laptops. "'It's like Plan 9 from outer space,' Julie said at last, turning in her seat to keep her eyes on the Walmart as they broke through the heavy traffic. "'You all right?' Song asked. He must have heard the slightest hitch in her voice which left Julie both unsettled and pleased. Sure, she said. I'm great, hungry. Can't wait to get out of these clothes. That drew a glance from the cop at the wheel, a white guy with freckles. Julie smiled to herself, feeling better. The trees aren't my fault, she thought. Headquarters was in a preschool around the corner, which seemed goofy the school offered a neat space with lots of tables for the DHS and military officials who were running the show. They also wanted to be close to their field labs. As soon as the cop parked his car, Julie hopped out and beelined inside, looking for Agents Coughlin or Reeves. Once again, she felt that jarring sense of the surreal. Hard-voiced men and women sat among laptops and radio gear, surrounded by rainbow-colored charts of the ABCs, the solar system, "'and smiling cartoon dinosaurs. "'She found Reeves first, "'a tall, thin man with thick wheat hair. "'He was on the phone, but Julie said, "'We have a problem.' "'Reeves recognized her without the second glance. "'He covered his phone with one hand and nodded. "'Hey, sure, we heard about your little gang of banditos. "'Nice work. "'Just help the cops, and I'll do what I can "'to keep the paperwork to a minimum. Thanks.' "'No. Listen, I need property records "'and access to your criminal database.' What? I'm on to something bigger than robbery, she said. Can you help me with property records? It was a place to start. How were the two buildings linked? The saboteur might be attacking rival businesses in order to destroy the competition. Or was it personal? Maybe he was nothing more than a disgruntled employee. Julie's instincts said no, but they needed to test that theory, too. Reeves frowned at her. What exactly are we talking about here, Miss bo Someone's planting bugs in the city. You mean, bringing them in? Yes. Reeves lifted one hand and shouted across the room, Leber! Hey, Leber! The other guy was white, too. They were all white, except for the Hispanics and blacks in the army, and a few Asians and Hispanics among the federal agents. Montana was not a diverse state, certainly not like Florida. Julie was accustomed to being the only black woman for miles around. New acquaintances usually stumbled over her Bayou name, mostly in an effort to get it right, but sometimes only to mock her. Mrs. Miss Ms. Boy-shane. That the governor had pronounced it correctly spoke of his willingness to invest in her, but Julie always felt the stigma of being an outsider. Leber, this is boo Reed Reeves said. She says she saw someone bringing bugs into the city. I want to know where they hit, how hard, and why. Look at our DTs again. Get me something fast. Sure, Leber said. Come over to my station. DTs weren't a new thought for Julie either. The media was rife with speculation that domestic terrorists had released the machos despite announcements to the contrary by government officials. These white boys in their $500 suits had all the answers. They said they knew who'd created the termites and why but Julie didn't trust them. Not entirely. Song joined her in the HQ as Leber walked her through the same questions half a dozen times, challenging everything they'd seen. That was his job. He was a federal investigator. Leber wasn't condescending, but he didn't take her at her word either. Too often, he doubted her. Was she imagining it? Yes, she had a problem with authority that could be traced all the way back to her mother, old bourbon brains, and her father, who'd skipped when she was five. That wasn't the issue. Julie preferred to think she was simply a perfect fit for the American West, loaded with independence, spirit, and know-how. For example, it was deeply quixotic for her to make fun of Dr. Lance Machofsky's name, but Julie had been suspicious of this whole plate of worms since the DHS briefings, which, well, had been too brief. "'You're certain you saw the same man,' Leber said, trying again to deflect her. "'Yes. Look,' Julie was losing her temper, "'someone's either trying to take out the competition "'or settling a grudge, or both, "'and they don't care who else gets hurt.' "'I understand your concern,' Leber said. She fumed while he tapped blandly at his computer. Was he delaying her? Why? Maybe they just didn't want her causing a fuss. DHS seemed to specialize in turning out these smooth, unflappable men, who, in turn, conveyed only calm and confidence to the public. DHS said the termites were just one of many gene splices under development by private and government bio research teams, in response to the agriculture industry's issues with blight and pests. Global warming would increase crop threats throughout the 21st century. Man-made attacks were also a real possibility, and DHS and the White House officially, quietly, supported efforts to meet such dangers. Machofsky worked for Dawn Tech. The field test they'd chosen first was directed against a comparatively humble foe, so-called pine rust, a fungus that had decimated Montana's holiday economy for three years running. It infected blue spruce and every species of fir. In other words, the most popular Christmas trees in the nation. Between the blockades and the lawsuits out of California, Oregon, and Colorado, where the rust had spread with imported trees and seeds, Big Sky Country was taking a huge beating. Nurseries made up 15% of Montana's economy, not all of them were Christmas tree farms, of course, but the entire industry had suffered. Heterotermes aureus was a desert termite. It could not survive in the damp, cold north, not for long, not even in the summer. That was its fail-safe. Machofsky had crossed his bugs with the black fly and with the rust itself. Fly genes accelerated the macho's metabolism. The rust genes meant they were dependent on the fungus as a nutritional source. H. Arius Machovsky was intended to pick and choose its way through a diseased farm at a hysterical pace, then weaken and collapse after exhausting the supply of rust-sick wood. Breed fast, spread fast, die fast. That the machos could survive without the rust was a surprise adaptation. Whoops. So what happens next? Julie asked, gesturing at Hysong and herself. We want to help before this guy brings more bugs inside the quarantine. We both know the city, and we're good with our hands. Can you put us on the team? I'll be in touch, Leber said. When? Today? I'll be in touch, Leber said. It was a brush-off. Julie and Hisong left headquarters with no answers. She was only generating more questions, such as, where did the saboteur get not just one queen colony, but several? How would he gather thousands of bugs in order to pack them into the city? One man alone couldn't collect and preserve a colony. Julie didn't like the overreaction to the gang of bandits, either. Yes, an entire army division was in the state, but there were also 60,000 refugees, and the fires, and a pandemic on their to-do lists. No one had 20 men to spare unless they were nervous about what she and Song might uncover at the site. Who was worried? The feds? Somebody local? Could she trace the orders to send a full platoon back into the tangled chain of command? As soon as they were outside, Julie pulled her iPhone and tapped into a Los Angeles area number, gazing up through the ash. It only rang once. Bo A young man. Em, you're not going to like this, she said. His voice rose in pitch. Am I hallucinating or are you calling me on a cell phone? Listen, I just... Idiot, he hung up. Oh boy. Julie turned to Song and slung her arm around his waist, feeling tired and lost and glad to have him. We should just go back to my place, she said. Nah, Song squeezed her. Let's get in some trouble first. Her place was a cot in a big tent, surrounded by big tents, where DHS was housing civilian law enforcement groups on the north side of town. Song had been assigned to a men's tent nearby, but they walked to his pickup truck instead, which hardly offered any more privacy, lost in a sea of vehicles that other cops, rangers, firefighters and workmen were using as sleeping quarters and offices. People were everywhere in the vast parking lot. You pervert, Julie said. song didn't react, opening the cab and waving her inside. His laptop was squirreled away behind his seat. He gave it to her and scratched her back as she typed at the machine. DHS had Wi-Fi over most of the camp. It was sluggish with traffic, but that was good. Julie's emails would be like one little mouse in the ongoing circus. "'It's your favorite idiot,' she typed. "'Forgiven. I've seen the news. You're stressed. What's up?' "'I need some background,' she typed. "'Can you poke around for me?' "'Poking is my middle name.'" M was a friend she'd met on the usenets, trading tech advice and buyer tips, she was pretty sure he didn't actually live in Los Angeles. For all she knew, he was right here in Missoula, or in Maine, Milan, or Moscow. But he'd weather his lines through L.A. for cover. He said he was wanted by the FBI. That was probably just geek posturing, but it was good at what he did. Julie typed up the two buildings' addresses and a rundown on Machofsky. Maybe her hacker buddy would draw some connections she couldn't. He didn't test her patience. A mere 20 minutes passed. If she was worth her weight, she would have jumped High Song, or at least smooched a bit. But she wasn't 19 anymore. She was 34, and it had been a long day. They both napped. Other people came and went through the parking lot, shouting, banging doors, as Julie curled on the long bench seat with her head on High Song's thigh. Then his laptop chimed. "'Your neck deep in slime,' M emailed. "'A lot of Don records are sealed. "'Federally sealed. "'Ready for the good news?' "'Oh, boy,' Julie said. "'There's good news?' she typed. M dumped a handful of files on her. "'Enjoy,' he said. "'I'm out. "'You don't know me.' Oh boy, Julie said again. Don Tech was so familiar with termites because they'd been experimenting with the bugs as a clean energy source. Termites could produce as much as two liters of hydrogen from digesting a single piece of paper. The highly specialized microbes in their digestive tracts made each bug an efficient bioreactor, which was why Julie's TI guns worked so well. It was also why M. thought gene-spliced termites could be used as living firebombs. A mating pair might infiltrate enemy territory, tiny, insignificant, organic, untraceable, then breed until they hit critical mass. Termites made love three times a day, M. noted, and some of Dantec's funding came from DARPA, which meant the Pentagon, top secret. Where did you say you knew this guy from? Hai Song asked, reading over Julie's shoulder. Okay, so some of it's nuts. Some of it. Here's the good news. Next file. Look at this. The first building where they'd met the saboteur held the national ordering center and sales offices of Holiday House, a billion-dollar name in Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and Easter supplies. The embargo on Christmas trees had halved their earnings in past years. More interestingly, the same parent corporation that controlled Holiday House also owned the second building and more in Missoula. M hadn't been able to draw a link between that corporate blind and Don but he suggested it was obvious. Who else could be supplying the saboteur with bugs? According to M's numbers, the whole thing looked like an insurance scam. They were infesting their own business holdings and testing an insanely lucrative weapons program at the same time. song just shook his head. How do we get into stuff like this? He asked. Oh my God, you can say that again. You, uh, you want to tell Agent Leber? No. Julie met his eyes and said, No, this is our city. They slipped back into Missoula as dusk fell. Driving Hyesong's truck through army lines was easy enough. They had ID and their partly completed chart and maps. We're just trying to finish up, Julie told the lieutenant who inspected her DHS-issued pass, and it wasn't a lie. She wanted revenge. Things got more complicated after dark. To start with, they worked without lights. Worse... There were only two of them, and M had provided four addresses to stake out. Song suggested splitting up, but Julie said no. The city was quieting down, but there were still looters and army patrols and, God knew who else, poking around. It was better to stick together. If they got bored, maybe she'd get up the courage to offer him a key to her house. Too bad the first hour was anything but dull, as they raced from site to site with his headlights off, "'Rifling through the truck bed for their packs, T.I. guns, and other gear. "'Once they crunched over an abandoned bike lying in the street, "'another time they nearly flattened a stray dog. "'Julie wanted to go after it. "'She had a soft spot for animals, "'but song convinced her to stay on mission. "'Then the waiting began. "'They'd hidden his truck alongside a bakery "'across the street from a mortgage broker's offices, "'which seemed the most valuable of their four targets.' What do you think the paperback is worth if the machos eat it? Julie asked, holding his hand. Everything's electronic now, isn't it? Song said. I think the insurance might pay them more for lost business and damaged real estate than paper files. Maybe they can also play loose with their taxes if a bunch of receipts disappear. I don't know. If they wipe out every place they own, it's got to be worth bazillions. And meanwhile, the bugs are chewing up other people's homes. What a bunch of... Beep! His radio lit up. That's channel two, Hai Song said. We're in the wrong place. Go! Julie shouted. Even as he hit the ignition, she figured they had five minutes, even ten, but she didn't want to miss the kill. In her excitement, she lifted her camcorder from the seat beside her and hugged it like a mad scientist. Ha! 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 We got the son of a bitch! Hai Song careened through town with his lights on. They were sure their trap was foolproof and unconcerned with scaring their man off. Speed was only slightly less important than getting there alive. Whoa! Julie screamed as Haisong swung around a corner only to find the road peppered with standstill cars. The fender on her side banged against a white Buick, throwing sparks. The side mirror splintered. Then he pinballed through the other vehicles and slammed on his brakes, squashing Julie's chest against her seatbelt. Where is he? I don't know. There! "'Julie flung her door open and dragged her pack onto her shoulders as she ran. "'Above her loomed one of Missoula's skyscrapers, "'a six-story office complex with lower buildings on either side. "'A dark Lexus, hidden in one of the garage entrances, "'must have belonged to their victim. "'He'd opened the driver door before it was too late. "'Their trap had attracted machos from all directions.' The frenzy enshrouding him looked like a nine-foot tornado. He shrieked and kicked inside it, creating brief man-shaped holes in the gleaming yellow termite storm. One glimpse was enough for Julie to see that his clothes were coming away in shreds. Can he breathe? High Song yelled behind her. Who cares, Julie thought. It'll be over in seconds. Half blind, disoriented, and naked. And God save him if he was ticklish. The man flailed helplessly against his car as the machos ripped into its luxury interior. Wet masses of bugs surged against the glass. Julie was jubilant. "'Got you,' she thought, trying to point her camcorder at him as she dashed onto the sidewalk. But it was too late for her, too. A long spiral of termite swept away from the bad guy and dimmed the corona of Song's headlights, enfolding Julie in the nasty, fluttering swarm. "'Gah!' she shrieked. They'd obviously hidden their beacons well enough for the man to set off the tripwire in the building's entrance, and no one but evildoers should be entering this office complex tonight. The same electrical impulse that alerted Highsong via radio had also opened a handful of Kim packets, covering the man with an invisible fog. The macho's sex pheromones were too subtle for a human nose, Even laced with the molecular signature of pine rust, but the bad guy probably heard the beacons pop and then saw Julie's wiring and radio transceiver. Unfortunately, neither Julie nor Hisong had noticed the leaking beacon they must have broken or triggered inside his truck. They were coated with sex juice too, and the machos were in a confused, rapturous craze. The bugs tried to eat anything that was plant-based, like cotton, Julie grabbed at her top as she dropped and thrashed on the sidewalk, hoping to crush the termites, but it was no good. She was grateful just to get enough air. Then her shirt came apart in her hands, and her pants sagged away from her hips. Her bra went next, and she staggered up, bewildered and choking. The bad guy got clear of the swarm first. Maybe he'd lost his keys. Maybe jumping into the bug orgy inside his car was too horrible to contemplate. Either way... His pale, white hiney broke into a sprint down the street, each cheek shining in song's headlights. "'Don't move or I'll shoot!' Julie shouted, swimming through the machos after him. song was on his feet, too, but he tripped over the ragged fabric of his jeans. Julie was lucky her pants had separated completely, and her nylon shoes were intact. It was only by the grace of God that she'd worn her leather jacket, which survived. Otherwise, she would have been wearing less than a stripper, and she wasn't a small girl. She felt herself bounce as she charged after the bad guy, armed only with her camcorder. What if he had a gun? Julie! Haisong yelled. The canisters left beside the bad guy's car were vital evidence. Could they trace this equipment back to the people who'd packed more termite colonies into those steel tubes for him? but she wanted this lunatic to pay personally for what he'd done, so she didn't stop. The naked chase was on. They quickly left the headlights, but the bad guy wasn't getting enough sun. His back had some color, yet his buttocks were like round little ghosts churning in the night. He ran like he still had a few bugs where it counted. Bouncing, Julie began to fall behind. Cold, she hollered in frustration, Freeze! Freeze! I SAID FREEZE!" The world went supernova. In front of them, the street flared with two dazzling flood lamps, and the 4th Infantry pinned the bad guy with 15 rifles, several glue guns, and a bullhorn. HALT! Put your hands up! This is the United States Army, and you are... The voice turned away. They're not wearing any clothes it said before swinging back again at full volume you're under arrest julie caught up with the bad guy as he stood motionless in the brilliant light casting a thin shadow like a rat with his hands crossed over his goodies behind her Hisong's truck joined the scene but stopped when the bullhorn shouted again halt a dozen soldiers ran forward their smooth helmets bobbing through the glare. Julie tried her best to pull her jacket down past her waist, but she was more interested in making sure the bad guy saw her grin. It was the same brown-haired dude from before. "'Gotcha,' she said. The soldiers were a security detail assigned to two neighboring banks. They didn't have any blankets or tarps on hand, but one man gave Julie his pants— earning a round of hoots and commentary that doubled in volume when she thanked him with a chaste kiss. Minutes later, DHS came down on their location like a ton of horse pucky. No less than 20 agents pushed in among the soldiers, taking the bad guy and isolating Julie high song. That was okay. Julie had already passed her camcorder to the corporal without any pants and asked him to keep it safe for her. And to smuggle it to the CNN news crews outside of town if she didn't return for it. The digital Sony not only contained the macho's assault of the bad guy and Julie's pursuit, but also the interviews she'd taped earlier with Hisong and herself, explaining everything with detailed maps, M's documentation, and property records. Song had already uploaded the same files to YouTube, though he'd kept the videos private and inactive for now. The easy part was done. Agent Reeves brought them to the medical tents for their scrapes and bruises, and then to the cafeteria for a hot meal, playing the good cop to the hilt. And Julie and Tysong were as sweet as butter, chatting him up like long-lost family. They'd violated a federal quarantine by re-entering Missoula, but they'd also nabbed the villain. Depending on how Reeves decided to play it, they would sink or swim. Finally, the clause came out. Reeves wanted all the information they had, their sources, an oath of silence, and their voluntary resignation from the bug teams. Julie grinned and made her counter offer. "'Nah,' she said. "'I think DHS should give us a public commendation "'for our valor above and beyond the call of duty. "'We can press charges. "'We'll lawyer up and dump our videos on the net.' for the world to see how DHS is testing their bioweapons programs on innocent civilians. What? You heard me. Organic firebombs. We know Don Tech is in bed with the Pentagon. Reeves stared at her. We don't want to pee on your parade, Julie said. We're good Americans. We'd prefer not to make noise about your bug programs, but we will protect ourselves if we have to. Which we shouldn't. We're heroes. Reeves slowly held out his hands. You need a medal with that commendation? He asked, and they shook on it. Julie laughed. But the next morning, she and Hisong were covered in sweat and bugs again. The termite war continued. At least they seemed to be getting ahead of the machos, with no one bringing new colonies into the city. She was more aggravated by the fact that four days passed before Reeves called a follow-up. Julie had to dig her phone out of her pack when it rang, setting aside her T.I. gun and an Army radio. Bouchane, Reeves said, getting it right. The bad guy was a low-level assistant in Machofsky's research facilities. He'd spilled like a leaky bag. Working from his profession, DHS uncovered ties between Don Tech's board of directors and the ownership of Holiday House. Apparently, business was down way down. More and more Americans were secularizing Christmas and buying all sorts of inane junk. Blow-up lawn dolls, roof displays, plastic trees. But competition for those spiking sales was brutal, and Holiday House lost their price margin when their tree sales went down the toilet. Someone had decided to cut corners, take advantage of the macho's outbreak, and kill the business and all of its subsidiary holdings. That was the extent of the scheme, Reeves said. No federal involvement, no men in black weapons programs, nobody but the usual suspects, a few inept corporate masters with their eyes on fat payoffs instead of hard work. People were going to jail. Holiday House would be sued to the ground. Julie was almost disappointed when she hung up the phone standing beside a gluey patch of termites on a smoke-ridden Missoula street? It's over, she told Hysong. There's no conspiracy. Reeves has everything sewn up tight. Maybe next time, he said, as he roughly embraced her.
2: There you go, it is. Oh, as you can tell by that voice, it was narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. Amy just pulls out all the stops with her narrations. Amy, thank you so much. I hope you have a fantastic Christmas. Thank you for the card. I got a, card, a little card. I got it ages ago, Amy. You're so on the ball, you. You know what I mean? I never sent... Have you noticed everyone that sent me a card? I sent send one back. <laughs> My heart's there, though. Happy Christmas to everyone. And thank you, Amy, for sending us a card. And Kate... Kate, yes, Kate sent us a car as well, Kate Baker. Thank you very much, Kate. So that's it. Christmas Eve is here. Warm and windy. Guess what though? <laughs> this is it, that's you know, why I'm bloody waterboard. I'm off to work tonight. Christmas Eve, night shift. Christmas Eve. I'm going oh yes, man. People are like, did he say he's working Christmas Christmas Eve and Christmas night night shift. <gasps> but hopefully, Christmas Eve, the kiddywinks will be in bed, you know, early to bed, 8 o'clock, going to get them into bed. And well, it's early for Ellie. You know, God, Ellie stays up later than us now. But 8 o'clock, and they can't get up until I get back in, and they'll get in the, in the house probably about 7 o'clock in the morning. So I've told them just to lie there in bed, which will be bloody murder for them. So that's what my Christmas, and hopefully Christmas day will be a lovely day. I hope Christmas, however you celebrate it, it is a fantastic time, you know, even if you don't celebrate Christmas, you have a lovely time over the holidays, or you just have a lovely time. It has been a great year, do you know what I mean? Let's make it a fantastic 2010. Do stick with Starship Sova, do you know what I mean? She's getting an old girl now, but she's still got plenty zip in her. Do you know what would I be mean? Nice to see you in the 2010 year, let's, you know... Go along and discover some great science fiction stories and some great articles. You know, I've got some little cheeky numbers coming in the new year. I know I haven't actually said anything about on the show about sofa notes, but I kind of decided to put sofa notes to bed. But I've got some ideas that I'm going to incorporate into the new show, or oh, not new show, in the Starship Sofa's Oral Delights little sections. And I've got some fingers in pies and other directions as well. For articles coming. So please, you know, it's an exciting time, Starship Sofa. Stick around. You'll not see, I'm gonna take a week off. Yes, <laughs> okay he's having a week off next week. So we know Starship Sofa Oral Delights next week. I will, I think it's, it works, I'm sure it's the 6th of January when, that's when Sofa North Awards is finished. Do you know what I mean? And that's when we're gonna kind of be announcing the winners, me and Mark, Mark Bowman. So do stick out and around and listen out for that as well. That'll be good. And... Again... Do you know what I mean? You've got until... This'll be the last... This'll be the last time... You'll hear a it, man! How are you? I'm getting Jody now. Do so you know what I mean? Passion's turning... you know I mean? How are you, man? Just donate, man! <laughs> please, please, please... £2.99! Do you know what I mean? If you've listened... All this time to me... Since... 2006... And you've not donated... You shame on you... Gentlemen, ladies... Please... Little treat for Spider and Genie Robinson. Oh, you'll not hear me again until New Year, and then I'll tell you the final download, I found download figure, the final price for what we've kind of raised, which is just, honestly, it'll be fantastic. I'm so amazed every day when I check the emails. You know, it's amazing. People are so kind out there. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic Christmas and a merry, merry New Year. This is Tony C. Smith saying, night from me. Ooh.
3: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... ...Starship Sofa. A fat procedure Shovel set for watch.
1: Airlock will be in 3... 2...
0: 1...